we continue our study. John is leading us to live victorious, victorious, conquering lives. He is telling us how to do that. He is telling us in chapter 2 to, to recognize how we know that we're a follower of Christ. Among other things, he will teach us in chapter 3 how to recognize someone else as a follower of Christ. Um, so John is teaching us how to avoid sin, how to live for God, and the power that comes with that. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we look at instructions that you have for us, help us to, um, like Samuel say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Help us to have, as Solomon prayed for, listening hearts that we can see what you have for us, we can know that it's true, and we can take hold of it to experience that it's true. In Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter 3, we read the first three verses of this chapter. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, exclamation mark. And that is what we are, exclamation mark. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So there are expletives, amazing things that happen that are being proclaimed in this chapter. Whenever I heard from 1 John 3, um, in a teaching growing up, it was always 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2. So we have these amazing statements, this amazing reality, John chapter 1 and verse 12, that, that those who give their life to Christ, he calls children of God. That's the starting place. That's where John begins. That's where he began in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. That which we have seen, that which we have known and touched and they spent time with him, the resurrected Christ. That which was from the beginning, he teaches in chapter 1, way back when Jesus made his entrance from Nazareth in his hometown synagogue and began his ministry. John says, what love the Father has lavished on us that we are the children of God. He calls us that. And then he says, in contemplating the rapture, he says, we don't know what we will be like, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So those are two awesome statements that are realities of Christ followers that God gives us. And then, in verse 3, he gives us what is the purpose of these three verses. So the statements are, you are a child of God, you will be glorified like his body someday. And then he says, everyone that this is true for purifies themselves just as he is pure. So John's purpose in this statement, this glorious statement, is if you're his, purify yourself. 
So we have begun, if we just go back to chapter 2, John is still in the same dialogue that he began in chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 1, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. Then in verse 3 of chapter 2, he continues by saying, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. In verse 6, he says, everyone who claims to know him must live as Jesus did. So John is giving us this declaration in the middle of this context. If you look at the end of chapter 2, really this, this statement begins in verse 28 that he is currently making. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears... 1 John 3, 3, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So he keeps making the same statement in various ways in the context of his teaching. I'm writing to this, this to you so you won't sin. I am telling you that you can know you're his if in fact you do what he says. And then he says, if you claim to know him, then you will live your life just like he did. And then he says here, if you know the one who is righteous, you will know that those who follow him do right. That it's that simple. So John is going to use... Um, three different Greek words in our ten verses today for the word in English, know. So he begins in verses one through three with this gnosko, this intimate knowledge. He is saying that these three statements are true. Number one, you are a child of God. Number two, you will be glorified one day like Christ. Number three, you are purifying yourself, just as he is pure. So John is saying that these three statements are true to the person who knows him intimately, who knows him experientially. So in verse 2 there, you see, or in verse 1, at the end there, the reason the world does not intimately know us is that it did not intimate, intimately know him, Gnosko. So he is, in a sense, separating people, even in Ephesus, who he's probably is the original recipient of this letter. He's saying to this church of professing believers, you're his child, you will be glorified, and you're purifying yourself. And if those three things are who you are, then you know. You already know intimately what it is like to walk with Jesus Christ. Let's look at some of these promises. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, where the recipients, most likely, of this letter that we are studying would have first been Ephesus. John is on the island of Patmos as he's writing 1 John, and he is closest to, of the seven churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3, the closest one to John is Ephesus. It's where he was abducted from. 
He's about 40 miles off the coast of Ephesus on an island called Patmos. It would have been for John his Alcatraz, um, like San Francisco has off of the bay there. In Ephesians chapter 1, he's dealing with these glorious promises, realities, and the same things that John is writing about. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, and here it is again, to be holy and blameless in his sight. So he gives this statement just like John does. Because of his foreknowledge, he was able to choose you in Christ, and if you're in Christ, every blessing in the heavenly realms is found. It's not found in a journey throughout the earth. It is not found in a heavenly gift that comes down. It is found in a person, and the person is Christ. And similarly to John, he's making the same statement. This is you, and you were called to be holy and blameless. So John says, everyone who is a follower of Christ purifies themselves just as he is pure. Paul is saying here, that before the creation of the world, he called you to be holy and blameless in his sight. That is the call. Reading on verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one, capital O, Christ he loves. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished, John uses that word in 1 John 3, on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his glorious pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So Paul is making the theological statement of what John is referring to. Before the creation of the world, God knew that you would repent and follow his son. Therefore, he called you, he chose you, and he did that so that you would be holy and blameless in his sight. And every spiritual blessing that could come to any human being comes to you when you make that decision because they are all found in Christ, not in a church, not in a gathering, not in a worship service, not in a religion, in Christ, the capital O, one he loves, to be holy and blameless in his sight. So what John is explaining in 1 John is that he has already taught us that we know we have come to follow him if we obey his commands. He says everyone who follows him must live as Jesus did. So he uses the Greek word there, gnosko. We know it's this intimacy between a husband and a wife that only they have that is the way in which we know Christ. So there is a growth period of, we will see different Greek words, but there is... There is um, I know that it's true because I heard it from a book that is true. That's oida. I've received information that I know is true. 
if I take that information, I apply it to my life, and I do what it says, then I will graduate from oira to gnosko. I would graduate from, yeah, we all believe it's true, and I believe it's true too, to I'm following it for my life. And he gives us a supernatural knowledge of, I'm his, if I do what he says. And he is, John is teaching us that in 1 John 3. Turn to Ephesians 2. Again, growing up, I always knew as a, as a boy, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but he's making a, the same statement that John is making. And the gospel is defined in Ephesians 8, 9, verses 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 2, which reads, verse 8, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. We just read about that in Ephesians 1. It is not by works. It's not by religious accomplishments so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. These three statements, John, 1 John 3, 1 through 3, Ephesians 1, 1 through 10, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, are all saying the same thing. That before the creation of the world, an omniscient God can say, I know Adrian will choose to follow my son. So before the creation of the world, he sees him as his own child. And then he predestined. What does that mean? He predetermined what the outcome would be of Adrian's choice before Adrian chose. Choose my son, every blessing in the heavenly realms, with him forever. God's good pleasure and will pours out everything that is his and says, you are mine, I am yours, this is for you. The outcome of saying, I understand your offer, I know that it's true, but I've got things that are more important in my life, is wrath and anger. That's all I have for you. So the reason he chose us is to be purified, to walk with Christ, and to show the world what that looks like. So 1 John 1, 3, everyone who has this truth purifies themselves because he is pure and we follow him. So the way God said it to Moses, and Moses passed it on to Peter, and Peter says it to us, be holy because I am holy. They will know that you are mine, Jesus says, if you do what I say, if you love one another. So it is by grace, no accomplishment on my part, nothing I could ever do to, to rid myself of this sin issue. It is by grace from him that I'm saved through faith, which is also a gift from him. Faith comes first. Faith comes from hearing the truth. Oida. That's true. I have a decision now, and he's enabled me to make it. Grace comes from saying, you died for me, I live for you. So John says 100% of people that are actually his purify themselves. In 1 Peter 1.22, Peter says, now that you've been purified by what? Obeying the truth. Obeying the truth is our purification. 
Doing what he says identifies us with Christ. Doing what he says enables me. I, I was reading some D.L. Moody yesterday, and some of his quotes are borrowed in your notes today. And the first one there in your notes is that God's word is not for our information. It's for our transformation. He didn't give us the word of God, though it is a blessing. So when this country was formed, for example, you had deists, you had theists, and you had Christ followers. Um, they weren't all Christ followers, but they all believed there was a God. They all believed that what we see is a result of God. So even for them, they used the Bible as a guide for a moral living, which is what the Constitution of the United States is based on. But John is saying, for those who are his, 100% of them purify themselves. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. As Paul is being more extensive in this purification process, in Ephesians chapter 4, we begin in verse 17. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. We just read that in um, Sunday school in 1 Corinthians 9, and he addresses the same thing in Ephesians 5. We won't go there today. Verse 20, that, is, that however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So it's not what we hear at an evangelism outreach, typically. But Paul is saying here, remember the day in Acts chapter 19 when I brought the gospel to Ephesus for the first time and I taught you not to live the way the Gentiles do, to put off your old self, to lay down your greed, your sensuality, your self-gratifying lust, and to live for him. Paul told people that the first time he spoke to them, so that it wasn't cloudy. It wasn't, do we all believe it's true? Yes, we do. It wasn't, do you agree that what God says is right? Yes, it is. You need to lay down your life for him because he laid down your life for you. Are you in? That was Paul's message. So when he was in Athens, he says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. When he went to Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, he says that you need to repent, you need to turn to God, and you need to live for him. And when he spoke to King Agrippa, he said, I tell people everywhere that I've ever been that you must turn from your sin, you must turn to God, and you must demonstrate your repentance by your good deeds. That was Paul's message. It's no wonder he was persecuted so much. He would be kicked out of every secret church in America. God loves us all, they would tell him. We're all his children, they would say. We're all going to heaven. 
and we're sure of it, and, and we're sure that God is loving, Paul would say to them, unless you repent and demonstrate your repentance by the life that you live, you're not his. John would say it this way, 100% of people who are truly his purify themselves. So John is trying to help us recognize who is a true believer as he was addressing that. Turn back to 1 John chapter 3. Dave quoted a verse in Sunday school this morning where Paul says in Hebrews, without holiness, no one sees the Lord. Nobody meets God without holiness. So Paul says he chose us before the creation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless. John says everyone who has this reality that they are his purifies themselves so that they become holy. Peter writes, be holy because I am holy, says the Lord. Verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So here we have the Greek word oida. So, John is speaking to the whole church now. So he says in verses 1 and 2, you know experientially what it is like to follow Christ. You walk with him. You are purifying yourself. You have laid down your life for him because he laid down his life for you and you know. He is saying in a broader sense here in verse 4, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know, Oida, that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So to the person who is in a broader sense, he says, Christ didn't come to clean you up. He came to take away your sin. So in chapter 1, he says... God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And he says in chapter 1, when we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we know that we are with him. So here he says, you know that it's true, Oida. You've received information that you understand to be accurate from God that he came to take away your sins. The sins that you have when you come before God, he comes to take away. So Paul would explain in Ephesians 4 more extensively that you were taught um, to take off the sinful nature. I should have kept reading there because Paul says, you were taught to be renewed in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old is gone, the new has come it is time for you to serve him. And John is explaining that here, that you know, you heard, we preached that Christ takes away sin. And if you're in Christ, there's good news for you. In him, there is no sin. 
So the great news is to a person who has a propensity to sin naturally, even as a believer, that when I walk in the light as he is in the light, there is no darkness at all. When I'm walking with Christ who takes away sin, in him there is no sin. So while it seems reasonably impossible to avoid sin, it seems difficult to understand 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that he always provides a way out. He will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can say no to. That seems impossible. And in a general sense it is, but John is saying, I want you to know that when you're walking with him, no darkness. When you're alongside him, 1 John 3, 5, there's no sin. You see, when he is walking the path, sin has to leave. Why? Because verse 4, he takes it away. He moves it away. And John is giving us powerful truth to defeat sin. Walk with him. And if you do, John is helping us understand the glorious reality that sin has no place. Sin is lawlessness, John says in verse 4. You see when the, the perfect teacher gives a perfect parable in your notes there, in Luke 15, 18 and 19, the prodigal son says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That's the perfect teacher, Jesus Christ, saying, here's what it looks like. You get out of your own pig pen. You realize that gratification and, and lust and me and me and me is empty in the end. And when you realize that, here's what Jesus says I want you to do. I want you to come to my Father and say, Father, let's be real. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be your son. Let me be your servant. And John is telling us, if that's you, I want you to know the love the Father has lavished on you, that he will call you his child, that he will make you like his son, that it has been predetermined that every blessing in the heavenly realms is yours. He wants us to know the power that we have available to us. Turn to Romans chapter, actually let's, in your notes there, let's read verse 6 before we do. 1 John 3, 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. That's one of the, that's a verse there that actually talks about once saved, always saved. You don't lose your salvation walking away from Christ if you're a person who cannot defeat sin, if that's a true statement, you've never known him. You didn't know him and leave him. You didn't see him and then you didn't. John says that if you're a person who cannot defeat sin, he's telling us this for our benefit. You're not in him. 
He told us in verse 5, in him is no sin. If you're in him and sin can't be avoided, then you're not in him. You've never seen him. You've never known him. You've never been in a relationship with him. Turn to Romans chapter 8. John will say multiple times in 1 John in our study, we know it by the spirit he has given us. We know that we're going to heaven. We know that we're in Christ. We know that the Father is our Father. We know that this is real and that it is true. And we know it by the Spirit He has given us. So Paul would tell us, and we could have made this statement at the beginning, we're taking a test in case you didn't know it. We are, we are going through an audible test in God's Word to see if we are his, that is an audible test we apply every time we're in his word. In Romans 8, Paul's most extensive teaching on the Holy Spirit, he comes out of chapter 7, where in chapter 7 he, he says, here's the reality. There's two laws at work. There's Jim and there's Christ. Well, wait a minute, I'm a Christ father. That's true, but I'm still Jim. I'm Jim first. There is Christ and there is the spirit that he gave me. Jim, it's Christ. Jim, Christ. That's a reality. But Paul is explaining to us in chapter 7, when he finishes, what a wretched man am I? What am I going to do? He doesn't say, okay, now let's do chapter 8. He flows right into chapter 8 to do what God says through John in 1 John 4, 5. He comes to take away sin, to annihilate it, to abolish it, to remove it. That's the Holy Spirit. So he says in verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So the law is good, he will explain. The law is beneficial, but the law itself cannot save you. You can't even obey the law unless you have the Spirit. So he is defining Christianity in chapter 8 of Romans. Drop down. Um, let's just continue reading, actually. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. He takes it away. He abolishes it. He demolishes it. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met. Where? In us. The things in me that condemn me. The things in me that the law says guilty, 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 guilty. In Colossians chapter 2, it says that Jesus took that law and when you repented and made him Lord, he nailed it to the cross because it was the thing between you and his Father that you could never remove. But he can. So when he does, the law of the Spirit that gives life demolishes the law of sin that leads to death. And that's why John is so focused on teaching us how to live with that reality. Verse, uh, let's read verse 3 again. For 
For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he makes a definer right there, just like John. Everyone who has this truth purifies themselves. Paul says, that's us who live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. That's why Romans 12, 2 says that if you're renewing your mind with the Word of God by doing what it says, you will know for yourself. Verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Without God's Holy Spirit, there is nothing of value a human can give to God. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if, indeed, the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. John is helping us recognize, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul is saying the same thing to Corinth that he is saying to the Romans, and he is telling us that there is a test before us. The test comes every time we open the word of God. Are we like Samuel? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Do we open this book, do we open 1 John 3 today and say, whatever you say, that's for me. Teach me, Lord. Guide me, Lord. Change me, Lord. Transform me, Lord. Sanctify me, Lord. John says, everyone who is truly his, that's what they do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4, For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet lives by God's power. That power is the same Greek word that lives in us through the Holy Spirit, this dynamis power of God, this divine nature. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Now he tells us about our test. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. That verse 8 is so critical. That's where the test is. 
if I open a passage like First Corinthians or First Thessalonians five, where he has like twenty commands in like five verses, and he's telling me how to walk with the Lord, and I scroll through them, and I'm like, I'm eighty percent good with those, Lord. Paul would say, failed. And Paul would say, that's not my authority. That's his. He says in verse 8, we cannot do anything against the truth. Only for the truth. So he's telling us, examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Open this book. See what it says. And in Greek, do you say, oida? It's all true. Or do you say, Gnosko, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to live it. Because he already gave me the power to do it. He has his son walk with me in perfection. And if I walk in the light, there's no darkness. If I do what he says, I know I'm his. If I claim to live in him, then I must live as he lives. Who better to teach me than he himself? Paul is saying, test yourselves. If you go through the word of God and you say, it's all for me, then he says, you're his. In Romans chapter 8, he keeps saying, if the spirit of God lives in you, if the spirit of Christ lives in you, how do you know? Well, I don't live from my flesh. I live by the spirit. What is his tool? It is the sword. It is the word of God. Let's go back to um, 1 John chapter 3. In Paul's letters, he keeps using these three words, who you were. That's who you were. That's not who you are. Perfection? Nope. Authenticity? Yes. Struggle the same level with every command in the New Testament? No. Accept them all? Yes. So in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7, John writes, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God has appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So John is using strong language continuously. How do you know that someone is a Christ follower? They do what is right. And there are levels of this that John is taking us to. One another is the primary command. People that lay down their lives for their brothers and sisters in Christ are at the level that he is bringing us to. They are in the arena that he wants us to reside in. They are giving up their life for the life of others. And when they're out in the world, they're loving their neighbor as their self. They're going beyond what the world would say is a good thing. So if you say that everyone who is friendly in church is a Christ follower, that would probably be true in every church in America. But John is saying, and Paul is saying, James and Jesus and Jude say the same thing. 
when people lay down their lives for other people, you can know they're his. Not some of the time, not some of the ways, but that's who they are. They're willing to take the difficult verses and the simple verses to follow, and they're just going to go right through with each of them and accept them for themselves. So John says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous. That's a pretty simple statement. Just as he is righteous. So Jesus... Um, 1 John 2, 6, everyone who claims to live in him must live as he did. Jesus wasn't just a friendly guy. Jesus expressed love in ways that he can teach us to express. When Jesus walked in what was church for the Jews, what did he carry? A whip. Jesus walked in church and he spoke the truth. And he said to the church leaders, you are children of the devil. They were doing religious things, but they weren't following Christ. And he was honest. And he would say to the prostitute and the drunkard and the leper that no one would accept, he would say to them, I love you. I will accept you. Follow me. Some of the Pharisees followed him when he asked that question. Almost all the destitute followed him when he asked that question. And they followed him with their lives and they risked their lives in doing so. So in your notes there, it is impossible for God to move in without change taking place. That's what John is teaching us. He is saying purify. Purify in the Greek here is very similar to sanctify. Um, and sanctify, we know set apart. That's, that's a familiar statement. That is a small part of the definition of that Greek word. In fact, it's, it's not the main part of it. It is to be made holy. It is to have an active dedication to something is sanctification. In other words, I'm always... His, I'm always contemplating of what he wants me to do, and I'm doing it, and that's sanctification. So Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in your notes there. John 17, 17, he prays to his Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. Sounds familiar. Paul just told us in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 8 that we will do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. Jesus prayed 30 years before Paul wrote that, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. It's not about true statements. It's about what God says is true. And whatever he says is true, Paul says, we will not do anything against that, but only for that. Also in your notes there, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, Paul's prayer for us, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He will do it. His will. Lord, if it is your will, sanctify me. I don't have to say that. 
I don't have to say, Lord, your will be done. If you want to sanctify me, go ahead. If you don't, don't. It is his will. He is faithful. He will do it. If the genuineness in my heart comes out my lips, sanctify me, Father, he will do it. He will do something supernatural with the words in this book that if I apply them, he will transform me. He will metamorph me. He will give me an intimate knowledge that, yeah, this looks bad. Yeah, I don't know if I will survive this. But I know who I believe in. And that's enough. He will give all of that to us if we will say, no restrictions. Lord, what do you have for me on this page? What do you want to lead me into? What do you need to shine light on in my life? Authentically, sanctify me, Father. Paul says, he'll do it. Ask him. He, he in a sense, says in Romans 12 too, I dare you to ask him. I dare you to genuinely say, Father, transform my life and see what he does. Because in Romans 12 too, he says, he'll prove it to you. So turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter is teaching about the same things, about the power and the ability to walk with God in the light. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant. Where did we hear that word? The prodigal son. I no longer deserve to be your child, but Lord, I'm here to serve you. A servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, received a faith as precious as ours. Same language as 1 John 3. Grace and peace be yours in abundance, Ephesians 1, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us the very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. I love hearing that no matter how many times I read it. The power of God is something that I can participate in. See, Allah has nothing to do with human beings. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and Charles Russell and all these elevated human beings have a God who does not interact. We have a God who says, you want to know what my power is like? Follow my son. You won't just read about it. You won't just hear about it. You'll participate. You can plug into a divine nature. So he says in verse 4, Through these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by its evil desires. How? 1 John 1. He destroyed it. He took it away. He claimed victory over sin. So when you walk with him, you demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and you take every captive, every thought, and you make it obedient to Christ. 
He rules. He reigned. He rebukes you, Satan. He has destroyed sin. What I think rules over me, I am wrong unless I am thinking about him. And Peter is saying, please understand this, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, sanctifying, purifying, growing, maturing, if you if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the things that can trip me up can't if I follow him. The things that I want to do that he doesn't want me to do, if I say right now my desire and my emotions and my self wants to go there, but you tell me to take captive. You tell me that there's a divine nature that is always ready for me to tap into, so it doesn't feel like it. I'm not sure about it. It still is enticing, but I'm going to plug in. Boom. He will sanctify my whole spirit, soul, and body. And he will allow me to participate in the divine nature. How could Jesus Christ approach the cross, paying for sins of people like me and sins of people who will never accept him and have joy. That's divine. That's what we sang about earlier today. That's a divine nature. He says, you want to tap into that? Follow Jesus Christ. Turn back to 1 John 3. Verse 10. We have our third Greek word for know. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So he's always taking us to a place when Jesus in the Gospel of John is explaining the new command, love one another. He explains to us something that's even hard for us to understand, that I don't love Jesus by loving Jesus. I love Jesus by loving you. So the first Greek word we hear is for the true followers of Christ. 100% of them purify themselves. 100% of them will be made glorious like him when they see him. That's gnosko. That's an intimate knowledge of God. That every human being, if they could somehow tap into that divine nature for one day, they would say, I'm not letting go. Then we have this oida, this, you know that the words coming from this book are true. And then we have this word here, um, Phenaros, which is outside, observable, you can see it. You can see it on something else. So you could, 
you know, I was just thinking of this word when we went to, to Gatlinburg the most recently. It was right after their fire, and you could see all these charred trees, a lot of dead trees, and you could see all this new growth and very little brush on the ground, and you could see a fire was here. You can look at what you see and you can recognize it. That's Phenaros. That's, I can see in your life that you're his. So we grew up, I grew up um, with this statement that we don't really know who is who. That's true, but I think it's true because there are so few true followers of Christ. So everyone in the church, in a general way, looks the same. So Jesus says to his disciples, don't you sort the people out, I'll do that. That's the parable of the wheat and the tares. But the reality is, John says, if you see a true follower of Christ, you'll know it. Phenaros. You will see it, you will know what it looks like, and you will know. So he says, this is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does what is right is not God's, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. I love you all. We get along. We fellowship together. We like each other's company. John is taking us beyond that. He's saying, they could have the same thing at the Knights of Columbus. They could have the same thing at the Optimist Club. They could have the same thing at a Freemasons gathering. But they won't lay down their lives for each other. So John's going to tell us later in this chapter, in verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. If you see a person who lays down their life for their brothers and sisters in, in Christ, they do it daily. They do it when they're being watched. They do it when they're not being watched. They do it when it's difficult and they do it when it's enjoyable. John says, we can feneros, we can know Christ follower. They love them when it's hard. They love them when it's easy. They correct them if they go off course. They champion them always, and they encourage them when they walk with the Lord. Christ follower. John says, you can know. You can actually see. You can observe that someone is a Christ follower. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. In closing, verse 13, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Heavenly Father, 
If that seems too hard for a human being to do, it's true. It is. But it's not too hard for you to do. And it is not anything close to too hard for your divine nature to do in us. So we acknowledge, first of all, that your word is true. We acknowledge that whoever follows you faithfully, always, laying down their lives for other, can know on this side of heaven that heaven is a sure thing. Help us to practice that, to, to grow our sanctifying muscles in this place by loving each other when it's hard and when it's easy. And help us to carry it out into the world so we look less like the world and more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.